Through the winter, Ukrainian and Western officials had warned Russia was preparing to launch a new offensive. Apparently, it was mustering forces beyond the Urals, according to General Valery Zaluzhny, Ukraine's army chief. Rumors circulated that Russian forces bolstered by Belarusian divisions could even try to storm Kiev once more. Russia had gathered half a million fresh mobilized troops and would make a push around the anniversary of the war, suggested the defense minister, Alexei Reznikov. But it seems that Russia's offensive has already begun weeks ago around the meat grinder of Bakhmut and is already running out of steam, a damp squib. Interceptor communications and the ravings of angered military bloggers suggest Russia is running out of ideas and ammunition. Now it seems it is the turn of Ukraine to strike back. But when, where, and how hard will they hit the Russians? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, consider supporting us by becoming a patron. We'll be adding exclusive content there, such as chats and FAQs. Ben Hodges is a retired United States Army officer who became commander of the United States Army in Europe in November 2014 and held that position for three years until retiring from the United States Army in January 2018. He has been senior advisor to Human Rights First since June 2022 and also serves as NATO's senior mentor for logistics. Until recently, he was the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, specializing in NATO, the transatlantic relationship and international security. Well, Ben, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you back to the channel. This is our third deep dive into the progress of the conflict. And the theme of this conversation, I think, today is going to be around especially Crimea and the end game, which, of course, we hope comes soon. But we also hope that that end game is advantageous to Ukraine. Um, so what, what has happened since the last time we spoke? I think it was about sort of four months or so ago. Um, it seems the front lines have been relatively static, but I think that's a little illusory potentially, isn't it? Because a lot has actually happened. Now, Jonathan, thanks for the, giving me a, another crack at this. Uh, first, it has been terrible uh, fighting and bloodshed uh, in the uh, in the fighting over the last several months, both in terms of the uh, seemingly daily missile strikes, drone strikes against civilian targets in, in multiple Ukrainian cities, but also very visibly for all of us, the uh, the meat grinder, as you described it, particularly around Bakhmut, but also further south near Vuladar and other places along the, the front, if you will. Uh, it's amazing that after nine months or eight months, Russia still has not captured Bakhmut. I mean, they have been trying for so long. And of course, this has been what I think is a little bit of a vanity project for uh, Mr. Prigozhin and the uh, his Wagner group. Um, fortunately, uh, the Russians have got so much um, internal strife going on. Prigozhin and Shoigu hate each other. Uh, so you don't see any uh, examples or evidence of a joint integrated fight or a cohesive command structure or a cohesive plan for the way ahead. And this uh, much ballyhooed uh, Russian offensive, I think the way you described it was exactly right. Um, there was a lot of talk about it, but it was kind of huh, uh, uh, 
just a little bit more of the same, a few more missiles, a few more unlucky conscripts. And um, I do think that they have culminated and that they are trying to hang on to what they have. So building of defenses, that sort of thing, um, in hopes that we will grow tired of this and that um, that the Ukrainians would not be able to have enough capability to launch their own counteroffensive. I think that's what the Russians are hoping for. But of course, I think they're sadly mistaken. I mean, it's hardly a victory they can sell to their own people. Even the propagandists will have a real problem spinning this. And the military bloggers, who we know are far more militant, I mean, this isn't going to pull the wall over their eyes. Uh, you know, winning uh, Solidar, Vugledar, and partitioning Bakhmut uh, is is hardly uh, a victory. Certainly not worth the loss of tens of thousands of, uh, of young Russian uh, soldiers. I, I, the part I, I cannot explain, of course, is why is it that it seems the women of Iran are more courageous than the um, people of, of Russia? I mean, why? I'm not a Russia expert, but, uh, and I know they have this immense uh, comprehensive internal security structure, and also the, the culture doesn't uh, create the uh, incentives uh, for people to come out in the street. But um, I think um, it's a, uh, it feels like around the edges, you hear a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more as people get the courage to, um, to speak out, to complain. You know, the famous mothers who uh, were so visible during Afghanistan, you start to see little bits and pieces of that now, not enough to change Kremlin policy, but it's there. And I think um, if the Kremlin were to announce another mobilization, it would be another humiliating exodus of thousands of uh, military-aged males leaving the country again. I think there's some interesting theories, obviously, and we could probably talk for days about the Russian sort of mindset. Um, but one idea that came out from an interview yesterday was quite an interesting one, and that is that during the Soviet Union, they had a philosophy, they had an idea now, whether that idea was flawed, whether it had been put in practice or not, we know that the communism wasn't really put into practice and almost certainly unworkable as an idea nonetheless. Um, but it was an idea that could be challenged. And I think that's that's why you saw perhaps resistance, because you could empirically say you're saying reality is like this. It's not. I can see it with my own senses and, and therefore you can resist the position now is pure uh, nationalism is purely emotive um it's not something you can rationally deconstruct or argue either you're for your country or you're against either you're an enemy or you're not and in some ways i don't know what your sense is it feels a lot more toxic than actually the end of the soviet union was um there's there's no doubt that uh the putin uh the recently indicted President Putin, by the way, um, has worked hard over the last two decades to capture the uh, um, historical narrative, to, to take the narrative of the Soviet Union and make it the narrative of Russia. Um, and, and I think you made a good point that perhaps during the time of the Soviet Union, where you still had people that had literally survived, uh, their parents and grandparents, and even themselves, survived the so-called Great Patriotic War, where the Soviet Union was attacked. Um, 
that's missing now. And, and I think, um, of course, there will be a percentage of people, just like there are in the United States, uh, a large percentage of people that will buy into this false narrative. Um, but I think younger Russians probably don't feel the threat that Putin describes uh, out there. And, and I think um, that, that's what makes this a little bit different. I mean, when they announced the uh, mobilization last September and half a million military-age males left the country, that, that was a heck of an insight into how Russians think about this. They're, this, you know, uh, this nonsense about Crimea is uh, like holy land almost for the Russians. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a great place to go holiday. But, you know, when the uh, when the uh, those people you remember the video of the people at the beach there when the when the airbase nearby was hit. I mean, the next day they were driving as fast as they could to get out of there. Nobody was going to the recruiting office saying, hey, I want to I want to fight and defend Crimea. No, that's it. Running, running uh, like like rats uh, leaving a sinking ship, I think, was the yeah. analogy yeah. at the time. And you've spent a big chunk of your career training for and thinking about a conflict with the Soviet Union, which in all that training was was built up to be a formidable adversary. And of course, Russia did manage to take and hold on to, you know, half of Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. And then we developed a sort of collective amnesia, almost forgetting about those countries as they sort of, uh, you know, um, were suppressed behind the Iron Curtain. Compare that to a Russian empire now that struggles to take a small unstrategic provincial town. Um, did we get it wrong then? Or is Putin's Russia a very different beast from the Soviet Union? I would say, uh, I, I mean, I can remember as a lieutenant in 1981 in Northern Germany, you know, er, everything was about deterrence. It was the height of the Cold War. We were modernizing uh, big exercises. And uh, I can vividly remember my battalion commander talking about the importance of maintenance. You had to be ready to fight tonight. We didn't want to have convoys with vehicles broken down on the side of the Autobahn because that would send a signal to the Soviets uh, that we were not ready to fight. And so, I mean, there was an intensity about readiness uh, that um, you would expect when, when your uh, potential adversary just uh, three or four hours away uh, on the other side of the inter-German border with a million troops and part of a, their own alliance, the Warsaw Pact, um, chemical weapons. We 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 trained chemical environment. We trained for uh, tactical nuclear environment. It was very real, and um, that. But at the same time, I can remember uh, people saying, "Okay, settle down." Yes, they have millions of people. Yes, they have thousands of tanks. Yes, they practice this, but. They are not 10 feet tall. They still have issues. They still have um, uh, weaknesses that we can exploit. So there was caution even back then. Certainly, I was guilty when I was commander of NATO's land command in Izmir from 12 to 14, and then from of U.S. Army Europe from 14 to 17 of overestimating uh, Russian Russian capabilities. Um, I, I got locked in on their modernization effort, the amount of money they were spending on new kit. The, and of course you hear the size, oh, they have a million plus or whatever. At the same time in U.S. Army Europe, the last tanks had just left. I mean, we didn't even have an armor brigade anymore. And the Bundeswehr was downsizing. The U.K., the British Army was leaving the continent. 
and on and on and on. The, the Dutch had given away all of their tank or sold them. The Dutch don't give away. <laughs> they had sold their Leopards. Uh, and so I think we had four ships for U.S. Navy Europe. That was it. Uh, and so, yes, of course, I was uh, concerned. But what I failed to appreciate is the impact and the depth of corruption top to bottom in the system. False reporting, poor quality assurance, lack of uh, stuff, I mean, storage of ammunition. I mean, these are all things that were um, suffered from corruption. And then the last thing, of course, is um, I, I misread what they were doing in Georgia and Ukraine and Syria and Africa. It was actually a very, very small percentage of the military that was actually doing these things. Um, it was it was Wagner or it was the airborne units. So they actually had no real experience, operational experience. And if you don't have operational experience and you don't do meaningful exercises where you train to the point of failure, which they don't, then you end up with a poor command structure um, and a logistic system that's not fit for purpose. I miss that. And that's an interesting point you make there, because, of course, one of the big propagandist narratives throughout this war, and it's one that still does resonate with some on the extreme left and right. I mean, I have heard it from both of those sides. And that is that NATO was an existential threat to Russia, that Russia had to do something because NATO was surrounding it and blah, blah, blah. The picture you've painted here is actually of a NATO force that has wound its capability down to the point of being potentially inoperable. Um, you know, removing it is those armoured divisions. And we know the British um, have invested in, in in aircraft carriers, you know, giant white elephants, as they're now being called, um, to the detriment of much more sort of traditional forces and, and armour. And this has happened throughout Europe, that the German army wound down from quite a high state of readiness to... Uh, what has been described as, as, as you know, barely um, bare, bare bones force. Um, so how credible is this narrative that NATO was any kind of threat to Russia? Well, it's, it's absolute nonsense. Um, you know, the idea that uh, Russia was being encircled by NATO, uh, the amount of Russia's frontier that actually touched NATO is about 6%, 6 percent, six of their frontier. <clears throat> the, the safest part of their border, the part from which they would never be attacked, but the part that touched Estonia, um, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, um, uh, you know, from the Black Sea, I, that they were never going to be attacked from any NATO country. And, and I think, of course, they knew that, but they needed this narrative to, number one, justify a uh, huge uh, expense or investment in military, but also to distract people from how bad things actually were. The biggest threat was not um, NATO. It was a Ukraine that was liberal Democrat, uh, a liberal democratic society that was prosperous because it was about to join the European Union, uh, that people could come and go. That was a real threat. I mean, that would give lie to so much of the narrative coming out of the Kremlin that he could not afford to, to have that happen. And so if you look at all the places where they have these so-called frozen conflicts, you know, Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia, Transnistria, um, the the Donbass that the Russians uh, took back in 14, life is no better now than it was the day they showed up. I mean, they don't invest in any of that. They just want to create this sort of buffer around themselves. 
but against what? And I think it's they don't want prosperous European countries on their border. Yeah, I think that that's a very compelling narrative there. And let's let's turn back to the spring offensive because this idea of uh, you know a highly mobile, potentially capable USSR army. Um, what we actually see now is a grinding war of attrition. And even though the ratios are very much in Ukraine's favor, they're reported to be anything from three to one to 10 to one in terms of Ukrainian casualties versus Russia. But is that a false equivalence in some ways? Because Ukraine is sending its best. It's sending engineers, writers, teachers, philosophers, musicians, and they're dying on the front. Russia are sending waves of so-called human meat, uh, convicts, um, minorities, unfortunately. I don't want to call those human meat because it's an extremely unfortunate situation. Putin is is, uh, conducting almost a genocide against his own ethnic minority populations. But nonetheless, Ukraine is losing incredibly talented and able people are important for its future development as a society. So I don't know what your your sense of of the price of uh, this resistance is. Uh, that, that's actually a very good uh, description. Uh, the the numbers. You know, I generally try to stay away from numbers because you know what's the source? Where do they come from? Um, the but there, there's no doubt that if if the Russian losses are three times the Ukrainian losses or four times or seven times or whatever it is, that's significant. I mean, Russia does not have unlimited manpower. There's this image that we all have of this gigantic country because geographically it is, of course, massive, 11 or 12 time zones, et cetera. But you are correct that the Kremlin is continuing the old czarist tradition of using their uh, uh, minorities and people from out in the poorest parts of the empire that that's who's bearing the brunt of the casualties. I don't think there are too many funerals happening uh, from families in Moscow or St. Petersburg, at least not yet. And and we constantly see on social media the uh, the sons and daughters of the super elites that are you know working in London or uh, holiday in Dubai or still carrying on uh, doing what they uh, want to do. So uh, that 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 will eventually come back to haunt them. I think. Uh, Ukraine has lost and is losing a lot of soldiers. Um, now, the general staff does a very good job of protecting information. We don't know how many they've lost, how much equipment they've lost. Um, I have to um, tip my hat to them. We know more about the Russians than we do about the Ukrainians, but I, I understand the why. Uh, and certainly, almost every day, you'll see a picture of a Ukrainian soldier that was killed, and you'll find out he was a famous ge- geologist, you know, or he was a uh, an actor or a writer or something, um, a scientist, exactly like you say. Uh, which is why this we want this to end as soon as possible with Ukraine um, having restored all its territory, because this is a they are losing people in terms of numbers. They they can go on. I mean that forty million still inside Ukraine. So I. Uh, probably 2 million more women and men military age that could continue to to fill the ranks as necessary. So they won't run out of people, but this clearly is going to have a long-term impact on on Ukraine's uh, future and their ability to to rebuild. I think, though, if the United States and UK um, would say Ukraine 
not only can win, Ukraine will win, and we want them to win. That's our straight, that's our stated objective, which is missing now, is for them to win. Then if that happens, then all the excuses about why we haven't provided certain things, those fall away, and this thing will end this year. We talked about that last time. It's now four months has passed. And I think we even talked about this in our first conversation, which is the West does not yet have a mindset to enable Ukraine to win. We're still in this mode of, of perhaps <clears throat> you know, allowing them to survive. But that window, I mean, we've talked about the suffering of Ukraine and the damage that's being done. So a quick victory, of course, is more humanitarian in that sense. But there are other clouds on the horizon, aren't there? There is potentially a small window which is narrowing in which Ukraine can be triumphant. Because on the horizon, there is the potential for a GOP success in the elections. There is the potential there that candidates could be elected that are far more sympathetic uh, towards supplying Ukraine with the materials that it needs. There is even the risk that you may get a candidate who is a lot more, um, dare I say, compromised perhaps uh, by relations with uh, with dictators. So uh, there are two or three factors that are out there, um, I think, that uh, that impact this. Obviously, President Xi is in uh, is in uh, Russia now for his visit, and uh, you know the Chinese would like to be in the in the uh, position of the helping to bring about a peaceful settlement and that sort of thing. And I think the Russians would love to have some kind of a settlement where they don't lose anything that they already have. This would be a disaster for Ukraine, and it would be uh, terrible for all the rest of us for to see Russia be um, uh, rewarded for any of its aggressive behavior. And um, Crimea, of course, which, which is the thing that gets batted around as possible. Come on, let them have Crimea so we can stop this. That's a guarantee that Ukraine will never uh, rebuild its economy um, and that um, it's a launching pad for Russia to resume things in two or three years when they're ready. So that's that's out there in the near term. But to the point of your question about um, American uh, domestic politics, uh, the burden is on my president to explain why this matters. And I think, actually, what I saw at the Munich Security Conference back in February, where the largest U.S. congressional delegation ever to attend the Munich Security Conference was there, uh, including a large number of Republicans, led by uh, the Republican uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And Mr. McConnell stood up at a, an event and said, I am here, along with uh, almost all of these uh, Senate Republican leadership uh, and many leaders from the House to say that we are here to support Ukraine, to support Europe, to support NATO. And of course, and then he went on Fox TV and said the same thing that night and said, look, and what he's trying to do is distance, separate the core of the leadership of the Republican Party from the uh, extremist voices that are out there that are making ridiculous comments like, you know, this is a regional border dispute or something like that. So that gives me confidence. And the fact that the Congress has continued to support Ukraine in a very strong bipartisan way. I mean, all of this aid would not be happening if it was just Democrats pushing for it. So uh, I've seen enough uh, commentary and evidence of strong Republican support for this um, that I am not so worried that 
next year by the end of 2024 when there's another election that this will dry up. But again, the burden is on the current administration to explain why this is in America's interest. Exactly what Senator McConnell said. This is in America's interest that Europe is stable, secure, and prosperous because our prosperity is tied to it. That the so-called international rules-based order, which means sovereignty of borders, every Republican cares about sovereignty of borders, uh, free trade, you know, freedom of navigation, which is part of trade, and America depends on trade. And, the, and all these other uh, aspects of things, that's our interest. And then, of course, the fact that the Chinese are watching to see, can we, can we get this done? Can we stick together? And so when Republicans say we need to be focused on the Chinese, this is about China. And the supply of weapons, what needs to happen to scale that up? Now, obviously, we're seeing dozens of Bradley fighting vehicles already in social media. We're seeing extraordinary clips of big columns of armor already heading into Ukraine. But there is still a lot of equipment, isn't there, potentially mothballed in the U.S. and uh, Europe as well, which if there was to be uh, you know, an uptick in supply of that, would make a real difference. One article I read yesterday, I think it was in CEPA or Foreign Policy, said there are 500 Bradleys that are mothballed, essentially not being used for training or anything else, and they're in workable order. And that is far more than has been sent at the moment. And then there's the conversation about the MiGs, which are now starting to come through, the MiG-29s especially. Poland has the largest uh, sort of selection of those. But how quickly do we have to move and at what scale uh, of provision of equipment in order to ensure a decisive Ukrainian victory? So at the risk of sounding like a scratch record, um, this is all about the strategic outcome that we want. If the president says, we want Ukraine to win, we want them to win, then all of these excuses about oh, how long it'll take to train or this tank burns too much fuel or... Uh, you know, I mean, there's so many excuses have been deployed to explain why we're not doing exactly what you just described, because we haven't said we want to win. The administration, despite the amazing job they've done on so much of this, uh, still uh, continues to self-deter because of, the, I think, an exaggerated concern um, about Russia somehow is going to pull out some sort of way to escalate that we haven't anticipated or that they would actually use a, a nuclear weapon of some sort. Um, and, and I think the, the, the administration has got to get over that. They're not going to use a nuclear weapon. But even if they did, even if they did use a tactical nuclear weapon, the administration would have to follow through on what they said, catastrophic consequences. And as I said earlier, we used to train to operate in an environment where the Soviets used lots of tactical nuclear weapons. This is not, you know, Dr. Strangelove or Hiroshima type nuclear weapons. I'm not downplaying the significance of it. I'm saying that everybody else that has a nuke or thinks they might want to have a nuke, they're waiting to see, can the U.S. be so easily deterred by Russia threatening to use a nuclear weapon? Um, if that's the case, then there will be an uh, increased emphasis by everybody to get their own nuclear weapons, because clearly that's the, the thing. But if the U.S., with support of allies, is able to bat that aside, then that will take a lot of the steam out of Iran, North Korea, and other uh, ne'er-do-wells who, um, who think that they need to have a nuclear weapon. And I think that's what's, what it's going to take. If, if you believe that the outcome should be Ukrainian victory, establishing sovereignty over all of its territory, then that quickly takes you to the, uh, to the recognition or the realization that Crimea is the decisive terrain. 
you could kill every Russian soldier within 150 miles of Bakhmut, and that would not change the strategic outcome. Um, as you said it earlier, Bakhmut is not strategically important from a geographical or operational standpoint. It's it's important because the Russians are bleeding themselves out there. Um, but you you liberate Crimea, that changes everything. And I think it would uh, create such chaos on the Russian side as well. And so everything that the Ukrainian general staff is doing now, I believe, is using what we would call doctrinally economy of force in the in the uh, Donbass area, training and building up an armored force that's going to launch a strike, I think, in June. That's when the conditions will be set from weather, logistics, preparation, and they're going to attack on a very narrow front um, that would penetrate these Russian defenses uh, and and break the so-called land bridge and isolate Crimea and then bring they'll be able to bring up more long-range weapons that can make Crimea untenable. So what what do we need to provide to Ukraine? Long-range precision strike capability. Uh, whether that comes in the form of a, a fixed-wing aircraft, a TACOMS, the 300-kilometer range weapon, uh, endless amounts of small diameter ground launch or ground launch small diameter bombs, uh, Gray Eagle drones, all the different things that are out there. That's that's what's needed to make the peninsula untenable. I mean, Crimea is the size for your American listeners or for your listeners who uh, have been to the to the states. The state of Massachusetts is the seventh smallest state in America. It's exactly the same size as Crimea, 27,000 square kilometers, uh, which is about 10,500 square miles. Every taxi driver in Kiev knows where every key site is on Crimea. There's nowhere to hide. So if you give them precision weapons, then um, the Black Sea Fleet has to vacate Sevastopol. Uh, the big uh, logistics hub at Zhankoi, which just got hit last night, by the way, by a uh, Ukrainian drone um, it goes away. I mean, it becomes a bonfire. That's that's what they need. And of course, Ukraine has shown in the Kherson offensive and in the north in Kharkiv that they're able to take large swathes of territory very quickly once they get uh, you know ahead of mobility. And as you say, once they punch through and the Russian front line collapses in some narrow points, they've, they've shown that that is achievable. Um, and Ukraine has also shown they're prepared to wait until all the planning is in place. I mean, it reminds, a, reminds us a bit of D-Day, doesn't it? You know, months and months and months of, of static, nothing happening. That doesn't mean there's nothing happening behind the scenes. That's a great way to say it. I mean, there is, you know, if you follow this closely, as, as you obviously do, and, and many of your listeners will, um, if you, you know, if you watch it every day, you're thinking, come on, what's this going to happen? When, when are we going to do this? And my God, where's the tanks and what's happening? And I would say that the Ukrainian general staff is very professional. They have demonstrated an understanding of the operational art, the operational level of war, uh, very Clausewitzian, um, very disciplined. Uh, and so and, and their ability to protect information, you know, has us all guessing when's this going to happen or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you step back, don't don't get caught up in the terrible fighting that's happening every day in trenches and in these destroyed cities. But step back from and think, look at the map. After nine years, Russia controls barely 15 percent 
of, of uh, Ukraine, the only part that really matters for them is Crimea and the land bridge that connects Crimea back to Russia, plus this famous Kerch Bridge. That's all they really care about. Um, and the Ukrainian general staff sees this. And so I think they're going to be able to penetrate. I mean, when I hear, oh, my God, there's miles and miles and miles of trenches. Great. They're filled with unlucky conscripts. And uh, and most of them are, going, are not going to be attacked because they're out somewhere that doesn't need to be attacked. The, the most unlucky ones are the ones that are on this, what probably ends up being a, I don't know, 50 or 60 kilometer wide uh, area where the main effort's going to happen. Um, and it's going to be comprehensive, combined arms, tanks, mechanized infantry, self-propelled artillery, um, armored engineers, um, the, uh, I think you're going to see extensive effort by partisans as well as special forces throughout the depth of this penetration. And um, I think we're going to see a lot of Russian prisoners and you're going to see people leaving. And it's the kind of thing that can really be decisive. Um, of course, you know, I, I have Air Force friends uh, that, that watch closely Ukrainian Air Force and they say, mm, the, the sortie generation is probably about 10% of capability and they're not doing what you would normally as much. And I think that the Russian Air Force, and, and I say this as an infantry soldier, that the Ukrainian Air Force is probably um, husbanding aircraft as well to be a part of this, wherever this um, strike is going to take place. So um, I am, I remain very optimistic Um and I think that Crimea um, could be liberated by the end of this summer, so by September. And that's a catastrophic optics for Putin. I mean, not only um, will the propagandists not be able to sell that, again, this aggressive nationalistic military blogger community, I mean, perhaps their influence is overstated, but nonetheless, that's going to create a very toxic environment. I mean, people have been talking about us being at the sort of... Uh, you know, 1939 stage of, of history. But actually, we could be still at the Weimar point where a defeated Russia turns in on itself after a catastrophic defeat and then starts sort of blaming themselves for this, uh, which is what happened, obviously, in the post-World War I environment in, in, um, in Germany. I mean, I don't want to speculate too much about what's going to happen in Russia because that's nobody clearly knows that and and there are different opinions about whether a collapse of the russian empire is to be you know embraced and applauded or or feared um but certainly crimea i think in many of our interviews you said crimea is the linchpin to a ukrainian victory so if you when you look at the map of course the uh if the russians retain control of crimea they block access in and out of azov sea so even if all of Donbass were liberated and Mariupol and Verdansk were re returned to Ukrainian sovereign control, they would never be able to rebuild as major seaports because Russia still controls access in and out of Azov Sea. So that, that's a, a major problem for rebuilding Ukraine's economy. Uh, Odessa is exactly 300 kilometers straight line distance from Sevastopol. So the Russian Black Sea Fleet is able to um, disrupt anything coming in and out of Odessa. I mean, this grain deal, why, why in the hell does Russia get to say whether or not Ukraine can export grain? And it's only because of the Black Sea Fleet sitting right there. So uh, that this is why I think uh, 
Crimea is such a uh, uh, a decisive bit of terrain for the for the long haul. And of course, it's also the launching pad. When Black Sea Fleet's right there, they sail out, they launch missiles against apartment buildings, and they go back into port because they are terrified of getting anywhere too close to the Ukrainian shoreline. Uh, air bases, uh, multiple places from which the uh, Russians are launching uh, drone strikes, missile strikes, air strikes, and uh, and there's this huge logistics hub at Jankoy on the northern part of uh, of uh, the Crimean Peninsula. So this is the the foundation, the, the jumping off point, if you will, for the next war. Uh, and, and this is why it has to be eliminated. And, and so um, you're right, this, this would, the loss of Crimea would create serious, serious problems. It, it's hard to imagine that Putin remains in power uh, after that. Uh, I don't seek regime change, but I think, uh, I do seek uh, hope that Ukraine is successful in regaining and winning and regaining sovereignty, and that the Russians are held accountable for war crimes, that these thousands of children are brought back home to, to Ukraine, um, and that Ukraine is able to rebuild itself and defend itself in the future. That, that won't happen if the Russians retain Crimea. We should not be scared um, of Russia losing. Uh, I, I don't, I can't imagine that there's somebody worse and Putin waiting to take over. There may be some, somebody more evil, but in terms of ability to do terrible things, it's not going to be any worse. And, and I think that the um, the Russian people will have to decide what comes next for them. And I think that's a key point there, isn't it? You know, someone worse needs to be defined. Putin cannot physically be worse for Ukraine. You know, there there is no one who can be worse than Putin has been for the Ukrainian nation, uh, identity, culture, etc. He's tried to annihilate it. Um, there could be someone who's worse for the Russians themselves, uh, more Stalinist in, in his technique. Um, but I don't think we should be worried about that. I mean, our primary concern should be Ukraine and Ukrainian victory. And for them, Putin is the worst possible um, figure. He has a an animus against Ukraine. It's quite clear in the pseudo-intellectual paper that he wrote um, prior to the invasion in 2021 that he already had sort of genocidal uh, intent and ideas in relation to that territory. Yeah, I think um, when, uh, if you reflect back on how people described Putin before February last year, uh, in maybe a few years ago, that he was he was always referred to as the former KGB officer, as if that gave him special powers and super intelligence, and that he could play chess and go simultaneously while standing on his head. And he was running circles around all of us. He was just such a brilliant strategist. And now, you know, the guy that complained that NATO was encircling Russia because of his actions, uh, the amount of NATO that touches Russia is about to double when Finland becomes a member of the alliance. So, so he, he's done that. Um, he took a nation of 44 million Ukrainians that generally speaking uh, got along with or tolerated or there was some sort of a cultural, historical, economic and family relationship between Russia and Ukraine. He's now got 44 million Ukrainians that absolutely hate him and Russia. So, um, and now, of course, the president of the Russian Federation is now is the indicted president of the Russian Federation with an arrest warrant um, out there for his arrest. 
Um, and so his ability to, to, to do things on behalf of Russia is going to be severely limited. You know, I, of course, I'm anxious to see what comes out of uh, President Xi's visit to uh, to Russia, uh, but he can't. He's not going to be able to go too many places and and act on behalf of the Russian people. And I think um, they'll they'll try and explain it. And I saw Medvedev's uh, wonderful uh, quote yesterday, where he said, "You know, they should they're going to launch a strike against the ICC in the Hague." I mean, that that guy's clearly certifiable. Um, I, I think. The isolation of, of the Kremlin is continuing. I, I can't imagine uh, Lavrov or Medvedev or Putin or any of these guys being invited back on an international stage, being at receptions, sipping champagne in uh, Vienna or Geneva or you know London or New York or Paris. And to an extent, do you think those optics of Russian politicians essentially being pariahs and war criminals, is that eventually going to erode the support or is it going to make China think twice about the sort of level of visible support it gives to Russia? Uh, excellent question. I think the Chinese are quite happy to see all of us. I mean, they would like to see us fail, not necessarily see Russia win, but they would like to see us struggle, uh, use up resources and... Uh, that 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 would not be bad for them. They also want to continue getting cheap Russian gas, uh, but there's no doubt that uh, Russia is the junior partner now in this uh, friendship without limits. Uh, uh, that Russia is, is the junior partner, and, and so uh, I think President Xi, now that he started his third term, you know, he's wants to be that he's thinking about his own legacy. He's thinking about China, which has its own serious demographic issues and economic issues um it's not good for china that this war continues uh and for sure uh i i am very confident that he has told president putin do not use a nuclear weapon there'll be no positive outcome for anybody if russia uses a nuclear weapon another reason that i think this is unlikely and then um of course china as a member permanent member of the u.n security council um, if it's seen as providing ammunition, weapons to Russia that, that are used in the commitment of war crimes, I think this is uh, this is uh, something that the Chinese government would prefer to avoid. Now, this, this subject does, of course, remind everybody that the United States and the UK and France are also not signatories to the Rome Statute, which gives the jurisdiction for the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, you know, my own government, our government is uh, is going through a process now trying to figure out, is there a way that we can provide intelligence, for example, that would be useful uh, as evidence to help the court in, in its prosecution of Putin and Ms. Belova um, without setting a precedent? I personally, um, this is not a widely held opinion, uh, but I personally wish that we would go ahead and, and be signatories because I think it undermines our credibility. I understand why we are not, um, but it undermines our, our credibility and and that'll be used against us. Last thing is on, on this is that I think the um, the fact that the uh, the court went public with this when they did was to to stop to put people on notice that this you are going to be indicted. 
And I think this will cause people below the Putin level to start thinking, oh man, um, you know, if I'm if I'm responsible for an area where we're taking people out of children out of Zaporizhia, for example, then they they know that they're being watched. And the idea of an international tribunal that could that could go after the other cases, that that would begin to make um the people that keep Putin in power put them on notice that there is going to be accountability. I think this is just as important as delivering uh, 300 kilometer range attackers. Is this war, this struggle is as much about the optics of the information war as it is about, um, you know, the physical war on the ground. And whereas, as you say, you know, the US, UK, Germany, France, we're firmly behind Ukraine and now you know, starting to supply uh, more materials uh, that are required and, and, and getting over our uh, sort of self-imposed restrictions and fears of, of, of Russian so-called escalation. But this point of view isn't universal. There's the global south, there's India, there are many countries in the Middle East and all over that, whereas they may not actively side with Russia, are quite happy to coexist economically, are even quite happy to take advantage of the vast gray economy that Russia has been able to build with its gray tank fleet, um, with various shady middlemen. I mean, this is one of the problems, isn't it? That democratic societies, rules-based societies, we are at a little bit of a disadvantage when we are fighting an opponent that essentially has no rules, no limitations whatsoever. Um, but there are many countries around the world that are quite comfortable working with that lawless partner. Yeah, and, and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I think uh, we, the collective, we have learned a lot over the past year about use of sanctions, you know, about how, uh, where all the, the little loopholes are and, and where, who does a good job of, of fulfilling obligations and, and who looks the other way. Uh, th this has been instructive. And um, of course, I would remind that We've only been at this for a little over a year now, and and, and already in a year, Russia's uh, economy, I think, uh, for the average person, is not very good. Putin was complaining the other day publicly that they don't have enough skilled defense industry workers. <laughs> That's a remarkable statement. Uh, and at the same time, of course, he's sending thousands of people to their death um, uh, uh, fighting against Ukraine. So... Uh, the fact that they are pleading with North Korea and China and Iran for ammunition and weapons. That's Russia, right? Um, th th I think they have real problems. They, they cannot replace the uh, long-range precision weapons that they've been launching against apartment buildings because of sanctions. Um, Turkey, uh, which uh, is is a extremely important but, but often frustrating uh, ally, uh, has thus far not allowed Russia to bring any more ships up into the Black Sea. This, this is not inconsequential. And so <clears throat> I think we, the West, have got to think more strategically in, in more different ways, not just about giving weapons to Ukraine and talking about Ukraine as if it's an island. Um, while the Ukrainians have, have, met, have done a much better job than the Russians in terms of the information domain there, we have not done a good job in, in Africa and the Middle East uh, where Russia um, is able to portray somehow it's our fault that grain is not being delivered 
uh, when in fact it's 100% the Russians' fault the grain is not being delivered. So we've, we, you're right, we, we have vulnerabilities in those regions. We'll be interested to see, uh, I think in May is the next BRICS sort of conference in South Africa. Will South Africa do what they're obligated to do, which is to arrest President Putin if he shows up for this? I, that's going to be uh, must-see TV. And uh, yeah, they may send Lavrov and others in, in place of Putin, but one would hope that uh, this international jurisdiction would, would, would be extended to other members of, uh, of his entourage. Uh, Peskov, Solovyov, the propagandists, I mean, all of them are complicit in a, in a genocidal yeah, absolutely. conflict. Yeah. Um, now, the last area I wanted to focus on really is lessons learned, because we're a year in, and as you say, it does take time for you know forces to coalesce and for these lessons to learn, and some lessons never get learned, mistakes get repeated. But it does seem from what you've said the Ukraine has learned that significant lesson about uh, economy of force. It remains to be seen, but they may also have learned the lesson about sort of combined arms, and we'll see in the coming offensive. What lessons are there, however, for the West to learn, both militarily and politically, from what we've seen unfold over the last year? Well, I think um, two or three things that <clears throat> have received a lot of attention uh, obviously, industrial capacity um, for defense uh, requirements, specifically ammunition production. Uh, people months ago started wringing their hands like, oh, my God, we're using up all this ammo. But U.S. government, the German government, uh, I don't know about U.K., but they did not spend any money to increase production until the last just this last month. So after a year of talking about, oh, my God, there was no money that was spent. So um, our, our defense industries, these are not charities. They have thousands of employees. They have long, complex supply chains. Um, you, you know, the EU is working hard now. They just made an agreement uh, to provide a million rounds of artillery ammunition, both from their own stocks as well as new procurement. But, you know, the TNT and some of the other components that are required to make it's gone. I mean, there's not enough out there. So somebody has to make that. And and so everybody's searching far and wide for what's necessary. So industry can react fast, but the political will uh, to do it. I mean, uh, Armin Popberger from uh, Ryan, the head of Ryan Mattal, he's, for months he's been saying, hey, I've got martyrs. I've got tanks. They're sitting on the parking lot ready to go. Just give me the order. We'll We'll start paying for the refurbishment or we'll start doing the refurbishment and they'll be ready to go. And they never got those from uh, from the German government. So the point is industrial capacity, but it takes political will. And that, that's a hard sell when there's not an obvious threat to say we're going to spend zillions of pounds or euros or dollars on um, something you hope sits in a depot and never gets used. That's, that's hard. Uh, the second thing is uh, air and missile defense. Um, we clearly do not have enough air and missile defense capability to uh, to do the job uh, in Europe. We had one. We have one one battalion of Patriot for the U.S. That's just enough to protect Ramstein Air Base. Um, but uh, what we know now is that Russia will use precision weapons against civilian targets. So the requirement for air and missile defense is more than just a few air bases and seaports. It's hundreds of millions of, of citizens. 
we're, we're not we're not ready for that. And, uh, and plus, you have to practice and exercise that. Uh, the third thing I would say is um, we can't we don't want to learn learn the wrong lesson. And by the way, I'm a simple infantry soldier. I'm not a tanker, so I'm, I'm not. This is not uh, me advocating, uh, you know, for for saving tanks. But you could walk away from this saying, oh, look at all these videos of tanks getting blown apart every day by drone strikes. It's the end of the tank. I mean, even the legendary military strategist, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is the end of tanks that are uh, untrained, uh, poorly or improperly employed and sit out in the open. It should be the end of them. So every video I've seen of Russian tanks that were being lit up, every one of them, they were sitting out in the open or they were bunched together or they were moving through a town without proper infantry support. This is stuff that sergeants, good sergeants would never allow to happen. Um, so, but yet what, what do the Ukrainians beg for? They want tanks because they know that they need protected mobile firepower on this very, very lethal battlefield. And I think you'll see British, German and Ukrainian tanks uh, playing a critical role uh, and and also uh, uh, the French AMX and American Bradleys and others playing a critical role here this summer, penetrating uh, the old fashioned way, the Russian defenses. And of course you mentioned drones and I think there's two, I think really interesting aspects of the drone warfare. Um, one is that it's it's been incredible for Ukrainian information operations. You know, you see these incredible, you know, precision strikes on trenches, on individuals, on tanks, and it's 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 a fantastic propaganda win for Ukraine. It also perhaps points towards future warfare, both tactically and in terms of human life and value. It shows that. Those societies that wage warfare, like Russia, that throw meat into the grinder and have no consideration for the sort of sanctity or value of individual life, technology is moving so rapidly that that kind of warfare is no longer tenable, that actually technology that is able to enhance the skills and value and protect individuals, that seems to be where it's going and where Ukraine has an advantage. Um, Another aspect of that I wanted to pick your brains on, it seems to me we're, we're at the stage of World War One, where you have drones dropping little bombs. It reminds you of these sort of biplanes. You don't have sort of, uh, you have a little dogfights maybe, but we haven't yet seen drone dogfights or massed sort of drone attack, or we haven't seen drones being used in a defensive capability. So you talk about the sort of infantry support. There could be sort of drone support uh, surrounding those, you know, to, to uh, fight off the the impacts of alternative drones. I mean, this is just the opening act, the teaser, is it not, for uh, future warfare? I think um, all of our armies and, and services are learning a lot from what Ukrainians and Russians are doing. The Russians have had success on counter drone uh, through uh, non-kinetic electronic means, able to jam the signal so that... Uh, a lot of Ukrainian drones never make it to their target or are not able to stay up. So that um, that is creating a new capability or given capability to uh, all combatants that is relative, relatively inexpensive and, frankly, does not um, you, you don't risk the loss of pilots or having to go get them and, and, and all of that. So uh, I think everybody will be looking for ways to integrate drones 
into their operations. I would imagine in June, we're going to see drones uh, in a supporting way with reconnaissance with strike or perhaps uh, going deeper to to go after um, Russian uh, troop movements or reinforcement. Secretary General Cavoli said a few months ago, he said, precision can defeat mass if you have enough time. And I, and I thought about that. And of course, what he's talking about, uh, Russian mass uh, depends on three things, headquarters, uh, logistics, and uh, art and uh, artillery ammunition. I mean, those are three things. So if you are able to find and hit headquarters, when you think about the, the command structure and the method of command for Russian forces, mass infantry requires a directing headquarters. Uh, their massed artillery requires ammunition that's dumped off at the side of the road at different places. If you can find those, and then on the on the transportation network, if you're able to eliminate whether it's train, railhead, bridges, then it doesn't matter how many thousands of unlucky conscripts the Wagner Group has. Those are three things that can all be eliminated by precision strike, whether it's from a drone, a HIMARS, or whatever it is. And um, the Russians know this, of course. That's why they moved all those things further back after the first uh, HIMARS, uh, the entry of HIMARS back a few months ago. This is, uh, I think this is going to be um, a way to neutralize or defeat the only advantage the Russians have, which is mass. Well, Ben, it's been hugely insightful uh, speaking again. Um, I think we have to speak again when the Crimea offensive begins and see how that unfolds. I mean, I'm going to try and uh, try and reach out to you again then. Um, but I think there's so much to unpick here, and I know people hugely value uh, your opinions, and I look forward to seeing the comments against this video. And uh, for everyone in the audience, thank you so much again. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I appreciate the opportunity.